Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm going to tell three stories today, all three of them factual, none are even embellished. First story. A couple of months ago, when meeting with newcomers to Old South Church in Boston, a young woman asked a question. What do I need to do to receive communion at this church, she asked. The answer, you need only be hungry for God. I don't need to be a member, she asked. No, came the reply, you need only be hungry for God. I haven't been baptized yet, she continued. No matter, you need only be hungry for God. Second story. Just a few Sundays ago, immediately following this service, I was standing in the narthex and a passerby, having stepped in from the street, entered the narthex, identifying me by my robe, he approached asking for the Eucharist. I said, ah, sorry, our services are over. He, rather insistent, said, I need it. I said, follow me. We snaked our way through the chapel during fellowship hour, climbed the steps into the Crawford Library, walked into the, the library kitchen. I pulled open the fridge door, took out a hunk of challah bread and a jug of grape juice. I poured the grape juice into a pottery chalice and put the bread on a pottery patent. I asked him his name. Daniel, he said. I prayed over the elements, and there in the kitchen, just the two of us, I offered to Daniel the bread and cup of Christ's communion table. The bread of heaven broken for you, Daniel. The cup of salvation poured out for you, Daniel. Daniel crossed himself and partook. After partaking, Daniel looked at me and he said, I needed that. I needed that badly. Thank you. And with that, he was gone. There are many Christians out there in many churches, maybe the majority, who would denounce such sacramental generosity as irresponsible, as theologically negligent, as slipshod, overly casual. There are a great many churches which practice what is called closed communion, meaning the sacrament is reserved for members of that local church or maybe members of that denomination. In some cases, only members who are also and simultaneously properly disposed and who have, quote, sufficient knowledge and careful preparation. Well, at Old South Church in Boston, by contrast, we practice what is called open communion. Closed communion and open communion are actual ecclesiastical terms. You can look them up in Wikipedia. We practice open communion at Old South Church because, as we read it, Jesus was sloppy, extravagant, and calculatingly generous with his invitations to the table, to the meals, to the suppers, and to the picnics he was forever planning and hosting. He never put a thought about who should be seated next to whom. 
He drove the disciples crazy with his lax and unconventional ideas about dinner parties. But all he wanted was for people to gather, to be at the table, to share food and conversation, to be fed spiritually and physically. And so there's a lot of eating that goes on in the New Testament, all of it centered around Jesus, to the point that some even thought it quite scandalous. In fact, those offended by Jesus' hosting of suppers accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. But he wasn't either of those. What Jesus was was a masterful host, an ebullient conversationalist, an exquisite storyteller. He was possessed of a marvelous sense of humor. In his presence, you felt welcome, wanted, cherished, and noticed. He brought people together and, oh, the meals. Fresh bread torn from a warm loaf and dipped in oil. The passing of a jug of wine. Fish grilled over an open fire. Ripe olives and succulent figs. Not to mention the songs and the hymns, the stories, the hearty greetings, the hail, welcome in, pull up a chair, here's a plate, have some wine. The feasting that happened around Jesus, that happened because of Jesus, was glorious and convivial. You wanted to be there. And so it is that the earliest symbol for Jesus wasn't the cross. It wasn't the dreaded symbol of execution, of Rome's horrific display of the stone-cold power of empire. No, the earliest symbol used by Jesus' earliest followers was an emblem of the meals to which they were so often treated and by which they would forever remember him. The earliest symbol for Jesus was a fish. Two arched lines, you've seen it, the two at the one end joining to be the fish's nose and at the far end crossing to uh, conjure the fish's tail. The fish symbolized the miracle of the loaves and fishes, the time Jesus produced enough food to feed 5,000 hungry people, and also the miracle of the great catch, and also, and not least, the time that the risen Jesus prepared breakfast for his fishermen disciples by grilling fish over a fire at the lake. So, the final story, the third story. On Wednesday, July 30th, 2003, at Boston's Cathedral of the Holy Cross, Sean Patrick O'Malley was being installed as bishop. I was there as an invited guest. The cathedral was packed to the gills that day, over 2,500 people in attendance, every seat taken. Among the invited guests were a lot of Boston politicians, and a host of Catholic religious leaders, including, as the Globe reported the following day, 500 priests, 25 bishops, and two cardinals. Off to the, sign, the side, in assigned seats, in a section of one of the transepts, sat a small clutch of ecumenical clergy. Here were the Episcopal Bishop of Massachusetts, the Lutheran Bishop of New England, and two, two ordained women the executive director of the Massachusetts Council of Churches, and yours truly. I was there in my capacity at the time as the leader of the largest Protestant denomination of the Commonwealth, the United Church of Christ. Well, sitting there tucked into the transept, a very long way from the chancel, I thumbed through the program for the installation. 
Reading ahead, I noted that the instructions concerning communion were clear as a bell. The instructions stated that access to the Eucharistic communion was reserved for baptized Catholics. In other words, the ecumenical delegation of which I was a part was not invited to the table. However, lest the ecumenical delegation had failed to read ahead, lest we had somehow failed to register that this table of God's grace was not open to us, when it came time for communion, 10 Catholic seminarians from St. John's Seminary in Brighton, 10 strapping young men, as I remember them, all in clerical collars and black suits, stood up and formed a phalanx between us, the ecumenical delegation, and the communion table. They served as the ecclesiastical equivalent of football's offensive line. Their job was to protect the bread and cup by blocking our path to God's table of grace. To stretch the metaphor, and you know I will, the purpose of the formation was to protect the passing of the elements to baptize Catholics while preventing the rest of us from intercepting them. Sitting together side by side, the only two ordained women in the house, banned from the table of grace, we put our heads together. We whispered conspiratorially, we strategized, we fantasized, should we make a break for it? Here's where you might imagine the theme song to Rocky. <laughs> we imagine hurtling our bodies through the formation of strapping young seminarians, charging the chancel steps, historically snatching a wafer from a priest's hand and taking a slug from the communion chalice. We imagined it. Oh, did we imagine it? We would not have done it. But we imagined it. And in our defense, it was Jesus, sloppy with his invitations and hopeless with seating assignments, who put such ideas into our heads.